Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is an old and dear friend. We know each other a long, long time. He's the founder and CEO of what is truly the world's first brand tech company, uh, and is just one of the most charismatic, forward-looking, progressive thinkers that I've come across. I'm talking about, of course, David Jones. Welcome, David. Uh, it's great to be here, but I was going to say, you can't be talking about me. I am talking about you, David Jones. <laughs> You've got the wrong day. <laughs> no, no. I, we have copious notes here. I'm certain that it's you. So, David, I want to start. I want to go back a little bit. We're going to talk a lot about what you're doing at you and Mr. Jones. I want to talk about One Young World. I know you have your next global gathering coming up in Munich in late July. Uh, I want to talk about some great minds that have been part of your life, including your old friend Kofi Annan. But I want to start going back to the beginning of your career at BDH Manchester. And I'd love to go back and start there and what you remember from what I think was your first gig in the advertising business. It was indeed. And back then, the only thing that counted in my life was sport. So I played competitive tennis, competitive rugby, and we had to do an internship in our final year at business school uh, or to get to our final year at business school and I had um, I'd worked one out that then fell through and I wanted to go and play tennis for three months in Florida uh, in these tournaments and um, the only way I, I could really kind of justify being able to go was to have an internship to start on the day I got back um, and I kind of thought it'd be quite interesting to go into advertising you know back then um, people in pubs in England talked about the great ads it was a very cool profession so I I wrote 50 letters um because you know email didn't exist then I phoned a lot of companies you know pretending to be the CMO of Coke to get through to the the CEO and then your long story short um BDH kind of uh you know were foolish enough to offer me an internship so I went in did this internship I spoke fluent German because I'd uh, done the first European Union sponsored business degree and uh ended up with a big pitch for Henkel the large global uh, German-based company. And so because I spoke German and because back then you could argue it's the same again now, but back then Brits didn't really care much about Europe. They're like, oh, there's that new bloke who speaks, that new intern kid speaks German, let's get him to do it. So I had the most amazing time flying to Germany to supervise research groups. I ended up presenting in German to Henkel's worldwide board at the age of 21. I'd kind of overseen the production of all the, the creative work into German. And then they sort of, when I I finished, they said, we've won the pitch. Henkel, don't realize that you're a spotty student. Would you mind carrying on, you know, working on the business throughout your final year? And I said, look, as long as when my exams come along, I can, um, I can actually focus on making sure I do, dead, do get a degree. I'm very happy to. So I had this fairly amazing last year at business school where I would you know, spend half of it being a student in the pub and, you know, not, not getting up to too much. And then a couple of days a week, I'd fly off to, to Germany, meet with a guy by the name of Joachim Prince, who was the global head of advertising at Henkel, and try and make sure that no one worked out I was a student. Amazing story. So, David, when I think about your career path, you're a guy who gets to places first. You get there ahead of where things are going. And I'm talking in particular, for example, about your early embrace 
of something that is now very commonplace, but you were there and wrote a great book about it. And I'm talking about your social business idea and your book uh, about that, which we're going to talk about as well, Who Cares Wins. Um, but you're 21, you're pitching, you have a cup of coffee at JWT, you have a cup of coffee at Lowe, and at 32, you're the CEO of Euro RSCG Australia. Looking back at how you grew up, where do you think that drive and that focus to achieve comes from? Were your parents very ambitious? Did you work as a teenager? Take us back to the early days and sort of the formation, if you will, of the foundation that would become David Jones. Look, I mean, it's a really interesting question and I think it's hard to know, um, you know, why, where your personality comes from, what's genetic, what's learned, what circumstance, um, what's inherited. I mean, I think, um, you know, I was actually, you know, a pretty rebellious and uh, not, not very, very studious teenager, it would be fair to say. Um, uh, and I think it was probably because my sister's like the cleverest person on the planet and I'd worked out that there's no way, you know, I'm not gonna impress everyone by being smarter than my sister. I know I'll be like the worst behaved person anyone's ever met. Um, but I think we, you know, as a family, we were just obsessive about sport. You know, it was like everything we did. And my, you know, my parents were the captain of every sports team they played in, whether it was the tennis, the squash, the cricket, um, hockey, whatever. And I think we just grew up playing an enormous amount of sports. Um, and, and I think, you know, that the drive to compete uh, came from that. But I think it also gives you something else, which is uh, in team sports and, you know, it's particularly true of a sport like rugby where, um, you know, the positions are so different that you need really different talent and skill sets to make up a team. You know, if everybody looked the same and was the same, it would be a really terrible team. And I think it just teaches you the importance of team uh, and, you know, diverse teams in terms of winning. And then I guess, look, my, my dad was a CEO of a big textile company in Britain and I kind of watched him and his work ethic and, and maybe even though it might not have appeared at the time, some of that rubbed off on me. And my mum, you know, was you know, and is uh, an amazing woman, you know, was on the board of governors, was constantly chairman of this, chairman of that, giving speeches. And I think you kind of, I watch those two things together and you just sort of fall into it. So you have a, a true global perspective. There are many people who feign having one, but you have one, you speak many languages, you've lived in many places. Um, how did that experience in early at a young age, again, exposure to different parts of the world, different languages, different cultures, how did that contribute to the David Jones recipe? Oh, look, I think, you know, and it's for me, the tragedy of Brexit is, you know, the, you know, my career is probably enormously down to you know, the languages I speak or spoke and the countries I've lived in. Um, you know, I told you the story about my first internship. The only reason I got a crazy amount of responsibility very young was because I spoke German, no one else spoke German. We were pitching to a German company and hey, we can like wheel this kid out and he'll speak in German. And, and you know, and then that just al allowed me to accelerate massively through that, that company. I then went to work at J. Walter Thompson in Paris. Um, and, you know, learned French there and was like the kind of the, the person on the ground that J. Walter Thompson, if anybody, no matter 
who they were in the entire global company needed anything done in the Paris office. They call me because I was a Brit, but I could also speak French and get things done. And I ended up, you know, global CEO of a publicly listed French company. You know, th there's absolutely no way I could have done that if I didn't speak French. So if you remove the, the living in Germany and France, you know, I went down to Australia, I launched Australia's first ever digital agency. You know, no one was paying too much attention back there. It was 1998 to digital. So I was able to kind of play with this thing and learn um, in a way I'd never been able to do in London or, or New York. So I, I would say that, you know, my career, you know, what the success I have had in inverted commas um, is a whole, wholly due to, you know, moving around the world, embracing different cultures, learning different things. And without it, you know, I'd, I'd probably be running a small ad agency in London today. Mm. So going back to that first CEO position when you were the tender age of 32, you were commanding a, a, a much larger ship. Many people were older than you who reported into you. You're now what we would call an old hand. You're an experienced chief executive officer. You've been doing this for a long time. But back then, you weren't doing it for a long time. That was your first CEO gig. Are there things that you look back on that you said, that really helped me become, you know, I made some mistakes. We all do. What did you learn from that first CEO gig or were there things that you achieved on the positive side that you carried forward? I think, um, you know, when you first get named CEO at a really young age, you're like, wow, I hope no one works out that I shouldn't be doing this. So there's, a, there's an entire, like that, that sort of fake it until you make it. And you're suddenly standing up in front of the entire company and telling everyone, it will be like this because I'm the new CEO. And I think, you know, there's a, um, it's not necessarily a learning, but I think you just, you know, you've been put in that position and you just got to go for it. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, hey, it's not the end of the world. It's, a, it's only a job. Um, but, you know, once you've got that opportunity, just seize it and grab it. And, you know, you might inwardly have lots of doubts and not be sure about things. Um, but, you know, you've got to give everyone the impression that you know what you're doing. Um, I, think, I think the second thing, and it's a very consistent theme through my career, is just team. I mean, I had brilliant people around me. You know, the guy who'd hired me, Tom Malt, was just a, an amazing creative, a super wise person, you know, the the two people who actually were the ones who really had the idea to launch the first ever digital agency, Brendan and Matt were like, we want to do this, we want to do this. Okay, let's do this. Um, and so you, I think you just listen to people around you. Obviously at the end of the day, have to make your own mind up um, because there's a reason you have that job. You can't like, if, if three people give you a different piece of, uh, of advice, you can't go in all three directions. But I think if you've got smart senior people uh, around you, and then I think the third thing is just, don't be intimidated by age. And that's particularly true in today's world, which is actually, you know, 21 year olds have probably got a much more interesting perspective on, you know, tech, um, NFTs, the metaverse than 51 year olds have. So, you know, you, you could argue that it's sort of, you shouldn't sit there going, well, but I'm only 32 and these people have 20 years more experience. So what do I know? I mean, listen to them because, you know, they will have seen things and done things in those extra 20 years that, um, that you haven't come across, but also don't be intimidated by it and, and believe that because you're young, um, you know, 
you uh, you're you're not qualified. I mean, I, you know, I'm old now, <laughs> and there's someone who's just been made CEO. I mean, 32 was young when I was made a CEO. It's probably 22 now uh, is the age. But you know, there's um, I think as long as you listen, as long as you bring the team with you, and just don't be intimidated. Just go for it. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? It doesn't work out. You'll have had a, a really interesting, valuable experience. You can go and learn again somewhere else. Great stuff. So your first gig we talked about at BDH, which eventually became TBWA. You also had 10 years at JWT at Lowe. You were the youngest board member when you returned back to London at, at AMV BBDO. And this is all before you got to Havas in 1998. Who were some of the great minds, David, who you worked with at any of those shops that you remember fondly looking back on that very beginning of your career? Look, it has to be, um, you know, Abbott Mead, uh, Abbott Mead because BBDO. Um, and I was a baby. I, mean, I was the youngest ever board director, but I was, you know, by no means uh, at, at the top of the company. But they just had the most incredible strength and depth. You know, David Abbott um, was the, the creative director and just an absolute genius. Michael Borg, who didn't have his name on the door, but, you know, um, was as instrumental as anyone in the success of that company, was just one of the sharpest intellects you'd ever find in the industry and just an amazing, uh, amazingly ethical person um, with just great integrity. You know, you had uh, Scylla Snowball, who was, I think, head of account management and then uh, MD and obviously went on to be CEO, who was just a, a brilliant, inspirational leader and person. Andrew Robertson, who was the MD at the time. It, it's kind of like in, in, in you know, footballing or soccer it's probably like the you know the peak Manchester United or peak Bas Barcelona. It was just there were just so many incredible people, and then you walked into a creative department. Um, there's probably you know not really been a peer to it, just in terms of the unbelievable brilliance and seniority of the talent. So it was just an absolute pleasure uh, to work there, and it it just cemented you know what I've always believed, but it was great to see it um, in action, which is you know. You can be very, very talented and very, very nice. You know, you don't, you don't have to pick the, the you're either nice or you're talented. Um, and, and it was a real example of a company and a culture that was full of a, an amazingly disproportionate amount of talent, but just really nice, great people. Fantastic stuff. So you then begin a long run, and we touched on it already, at Euro and ultimately Havas, uh, how did you get there with it? Did they recruit you? Give us the, the how did David get to Euro and Havas story? So um, I had been in jail with Thompson in Paris, moved back uh, to the UK, had very luckily the single best thing happened to my life, met my, my French wife. She moved to London. We'd been in London, you know, four or five years, four years actually. And um, going back to this sort of wanting to, you know, live life rather than, you know, spend the, the entire lifetime in one place. We're like, okay, where are we going to go? We've been in London four years. This is a bit boring now. Let's move on. So we kind of sat down one night and went, Look, well, there's three places around the world that we'd be really interested in living that have a great ad industry. And it was uh, Buenos Aires, Cape Town and Sydney. And so we decided that the, that year we would go on holiday to each one of those places. And whilst we were there, I'd kind of pack a suit um, and go and try and land a job. And um, first you know, trip was to Sydney, we arrived down there and I did a ton of interviewing. What you realize really quickly is anybody with a big senior job in Sydney doesn't want to leave. It's like the greatest city on the planet. And all they're trying to do is make sure that they can have this job for 40 years. So there weren't too many 
job opportunities. And I, I met a, a terrific guy, Tom Malt, who um, had been chairman and creative director of your RSCG Australia, uh, just a complete genius. And he'd taken over the CEO mantle as well. And I think he'd decided that actually it was a bit of a crap job. He didn't like it. So he was going to bring someone in to do the, the CEO bit so that he could do the chairman and creative director bit. And uh, we met, we got on extremely well. And, um, you know, literally three months later, I was on a plane um, down to Australia to, to join. And we had, a, you know, we had a fantastic partnership. He bailed after about a year to go and sail his boat um, around the world, uh, the bastard. Um, but you know, we remained good friends and um, he actually came back in a different guise. We, we backed a company that, that he set up. Um, but it was just an amazing learning curve. And as I said, we launched Australia's first uh, digital agency. And at one point we were booking 40% of all online media in Australia. We had our big clients were Intel and Dell an orange and nine MSN, you know, which back then were the huge tech companies in, in the world. Um, and, it, you know, it's hard to think now, but, you know, this is a time of dial up internet. This is a time where it takes you, you know, you know 10 minutes to download a photo. This is a time where mo you know, pretty much nobody thought you'd ever watch a video on a laptop. Um, actually laptops weren't really a thing. Pretty much no one thought you would watch a, a video on a desktop. Um, because it just took forever to download a little picture. So it wasn't like we, you know, that we were doing something that was obvious and genius. Most people kind of were like, why are you doing this? This is a bit weird. Um, and because we did it early, we just ended up building a, a pretty unassailable position. And we were you know, both digital agency of the year, four years in a row and ad agency of the year, four years in a row. And, and that's what put me on the map at Havas. And they kind of went, hey, that, that bloke who, um, who sort of, managed to do something in little Australia, maybe we should get him to do something elsewhere. And talk about, David, what it meant to be in digital then. You know, I, yesterday I took, a, for the first time in almost two years, since all this COVID business began, I went to Mile Club, the Friars Club on 55th. And as we were walking to the subway afterwards, the guy I was with said, oh, I used to work in that building. And he pointed to what was the old Sony building, which was the old AT&T building on 55th and Madison. And he said, my first job was there. I used to sell fax machines and they were $4,000 a piece. And the biggest problem I had was people couldn't wrap their heads around the concept of having to get a second phone line for the fax machine. So we've come pretty far, pretty fast. You now lead the world's leading and most progressive brand tech company in our space and in other spaces, frankly. I mean, what you've done at you and Mr. Jones, which we're going to talk about is remarkable. But what did it mean to be in digital then? 20, oh, then, some, I mean, this, 20 this, some odd years ago. Oh no, this was, you know, this was in the days where, you know, being a digital agency meant building websites. And you know, there's great learnings at each phase of, of uh, internet and text development. But I think back then, you know, everybody was building 500 page deep websites. And <laughs> they didn't realize that no one's actually gonna go through all 500 pages. You know, it, it, banner, there, were, there weren't yet standards uh, for banner advertising. So then there's huge debate around, you know, how do you, how do you standardize the formats that are gonna sit on these websites? You know, Yahoo, I think was probably the number one uh, portal, portals were huge things, you know, MSN, Yahoo. Um, and so there was like a lot of standardized, you know, flash and rich media were coming in. So these banners could actually move a little bit. 
This was kind of crazy, wild, futuristic stuff. We were building marketing intranets. Um, so, you know, up just the big telco, we built a big marketing intranet for them. And, and in fact, we we're doing a lot of development work because at Havas and URCG, um, they built uh, Starlink, which was uh, the big global marketing intranet that ran all of uh, Intel's marketing and Andy Grove, the then CEO of, of Intel had gone to um, ad tech conference that you're going to one day all companies will have this. But, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of if you were back in the moment, we were at the absolute cutting edge of tech. If you look back on it now, you know, it's kind of positively um, dinosauric. And I think it's the great learning for today. You know, and I, I was doing a talk this week to one of our clients. It's sort of when you're looking at NFTs, um, virtual products, you know, the metaverse, all of these things, it's so easy to do what people did back in 1998, which is, look, I get why the internet will be a thing for travel, you know, travel businesses, travel agents. It's not going to be a thing for my business. And you fast forward to today, and I don't think you'd find anybody who would say that anymore. And I believe it's the same thing, you know, we're, we're, we're heading into another tech revolution, and it's probably not obvious or easy to understand, you know, why this is going to change every business and why it's going to be, you know, relevant for every single business, but it is. Um, so I think, yeah, it was, but it was, it was, uh, I mean, we genuinely, I mean, like none of the big Australian media companies were getting into the internet because as I said, you'd never be able to watch a video on a computer. So why would you possibly, I mean, in the, you know, the concept that you would be, you know, live streaming videos to your mobile phone as you're sitting on the subway was just, you know, crazy science fiction. So you rise up relatively quickly, again, a recurring theme and go from Sydney. And I agree on your take is Sydney is one of the world's great, great cities. It's uh, advertising week APAC. It's a great market for us. Uh, and in five or six years, you're elevated. You succeed Jim Heakin. And about four years later, you're the global CEO. You're about, I'm going to guess, give or take 42 years old running one of the largest players, most important, most influential players in our business. When you look back at the Havas tenure in that chapter, let's talk a little bit about some of the clients and some of the work. Are there particular pieces of work that you look back on and we're really proud of? I know you won a lot of awards, but what work meant something to you reflecting on that part of your career? Oh, look, so there's, there's two or three. And, and I sort of, so I'd left Sydney and. 2002, there was a big pitch for Wreck-It. I'd led it, we ended up winning. So they said, will you, will you go back to the UK and, run, and set that up? So I did, and then literally 2004, the call came, which is, you know, hey, we're looking for a CEO uh, for New York. Um, How do you fancy it? And, you know, my view had always been anything that involved moving and exciting opportunities was like a massive yes. So I'm like, yeah, sure. So. Um, and, you know, probably one of the other things we didn't talk about, which has probably you know been equally important in my career, is my insane, insanely massive luck. Um, and so I arrive uh, in, in New York at, I think it was still called Mesner, your um, CG at the time. Um, and they'd had a tough two years, and they hadn't won too much, and MCI kind of disappeared, and Intel was on its way out, and you know, and I literally, I kind of, I remember landing and about a month later, we get this um, RFP for Charles Schwab. Um, and, you know, we, we pitched and won that business, an amazing team, a terrifically gifted creative team of, of Izzy Garber, Michael Lee, you know, and 
is he came in one day and we'd, we'd been out to see the team that Charles Schwab and they kept saying, well, Chuck this and Chuck that. And like, is he nailed the talk to Chuck campaign? And we went and presented it and won. And, you know, that ran, I think, for almost a decade and was a, uh, a phenomenally powerful and successful campaign in, in what is often an otherwise bland and generic financial services category. So talk to Chuck for Charles Schwab. Let's talk about the personal attention you and your money deserve. At Charles Schwab, that means taking a close look at you as well as your portfolio. We ask the right questions, then we actually listen to the answers before giving you practical ideas you can act on. So talk to Chuck, online, on the phone, or come in and pull up a chair. The other one that um, was an amazing campaign, there was a, uh, a genius creative Eurostrategy uh, at the time called Jeff Kling. Um, and I named him as executive creative director. And, you know, I think most people went, look, but like, he's like a widened guy with a thousand tattoos and you can't possibly, like, how can he be the executive director? And he was just so talented. And there were two campaigns um, that we worked on together. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I make, when I say worked on, like he came up with the ideas and did all the creative. And I, I just happened to be in the room with the clients at the time um, we were presenting them. But um, we, we pitched and we won uh, the Jaguar business with the gorgeous campaign, which, you know, I still think is, is right up there with the best automotive advertising. Gorgeous deserves your immediate attention. Gorgeous makes effort look effortless. Gorgeous stays up late and still looks gorgeous. Gorgeous has no love for logic. Gorgeous loves fast. Everyone cares what Gorgeous says. Gorgeous gets in everywhere. Gorgeous can't be ordinary, even if it tries. Gorgeous pays for itself in the first five seconds. Gorgeous doesn't care at all what others are doing. Gorgeous was born that way. Gorgeous trumps everything. Gorgeous is worth it. And then finally, um, so Dosek is the most interesting man in the world. I mean, it was just the most genius uh, piece of creativity from Jeff and the team. In a past life, he was himself. If opportunity knocks and he's not home, opportunity waits. He gave his father the talk. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer Dosakis. Stay thirsty, my friends. Um, and, you know, just took that brand from being a sort of small little local uh, Mexican beer brand that, you know, people drank when they went down to Mexico to like the fastest growing beer brand in North America. So I would say those are three massive creative highlights. Um, and, you know, super excited and, and proud to talk about them today still. That's great. And in the midst of your tenure uh, at Havas, you, along with Kate, found One Young World. Let's go back to 2009 and talk about the formation. What, what, 
was the genesis of it? Were you trying to fill a gap? Did you see an opportunity? What was that first conversation and the earliest idea? And I know now you're coming up again, we mentioned earlier on your next edition in Munich in just about a month. Yeah, look, I think, you know, Kate uh, and I um, were very passionate about business being a force for good. Um, and, you know, like this sounds like so cliched now, but back in 2007, 2008, there weren't too many people who thought it was a good idea. You know, they, they thought business made money um, and charities did good. And we had done Kofi Annan's climate campaign in 2008. Um, and it was just a real, you know, just, I mean, he was just the most incredible human being. And um, we learned so much from him over the years. And I think we were sort of sitting there going, look, um, we're going to be going off and seeing big companies and saying, you should have a purpose beyond profit. You know, purpose is important. And the, what they're obviously going to do is they're going to go, yeah, that's great, but what's yours? And I think we, we were like, you know, we don't want to be sitting there going, I oh, don't know, no, we don't have to have a purpose beyond profit, you do. Um, and so we were kind of talking about, you know, well, what should, could or should our purpose beyond profit be? And, you know, we were very aware that there was a, a very unique generation of young leaders. They were the most knowledgeable through technology and how that democratized education. They were the most socially responsible, but above all, you know, they were the most powerful because they understood better than anyone how to use the power of digital and social media to drive change. And, and Kate was sort of like, we are, you know, you're the youngest global CEO in the industry. You know, there's this amazing generation of young leaders. Why don't we put on uh, a platform to empower brilliant young leaders to drive change? So that was the idea. Um, and, you know, Kofi sort of said, well, I'll be a counselor at the, at the first one for you. And so did Bob Geldof and Desmond Tutu and Mohammed Yunus. Um, and so I went to uh, Google site Geist and shared this idea. And I had a video from Kofi and from Bob I'm from Desmond Tutu saying, this is a great idea and you should get behind it. And uh, what's interesting is actually, if you look back to what I said then and what we actually did, it's quite similar. There isn't, there isn't too much that I go back and edit out of the original video. And today it's become, you know, what Vice call the largest and most impactful uh, summit for young leaders. Um, it's kind of, you know, it, it's just become so powerful in terms of the platform it's giving for brilliant young leaders to drive change in the world. And it's obviously a 501c3 and a, um, a registered UK charity, you know, pretty much every major company in the world is a sponsor. We bring together every year, in a normal year, 3,000 brilliant young leaders, but they're typically, you know, we had two Nobel Peace Prize nominees last year, Time 100. They're incredible, incredible young leaders uh, from 196 countries. And I think that's the other bit that's really special is it's sort of, you know, other than the Olympic Games, it's the most global event uh, in the annual calendar. So you mentioned them a couple of times, but Talk about your relationship with Kofi Annan. I know he was a very special part of your life. Yeah, no, look, I mean, he, you know, he was, is my hero. Um, he, you know, I, I would, he was a great friend. Um, although you kind of, I was always too in awe of him to really enjoy our friendship. In fact, every time he called me, I'm like, oh my God, what have you done wrong? <laughs> and, and it would always be something nice that he was calling about. But my immediate reaction was, I've let him down. I've done something I shouldn't have done. He was just an incredible leader. I mean, I think he was so wise and you talk to him about any subject and he had, you know, he just had a perspective and a context on it that you couldn't even understand. And he was so ahead of, in terms of understanding where things were going. And I, you know, I remember being in his office in Geneva. So one of the best things I ever got to do was he wasn't, he didn't love technology that much. And we were gonna, he, with the Kofi Annan Foundation, 
um, we're going to do these hangouts with Kofi. And he sort of asked me if I'd go and like sit next to him on these Google Hangouts and sort of moderate them and take all the questions and help him. And it was like the greatest thing I ever got to do. And he'd thank me for doing it at the end of it. But I remember we were sitting chatting one time and the Arab Spring had just, just happened. He said, you know, David, who wins in situations like this? And I'm like, no, he said, oh, it's the Muslim brothers. And, you know, but, you know, no one was saying that for a year and a half. And then it was exactly what happened. And, and just so perceptive and smart. And I think the world, you know, the world misses uh, global states, people like him. Uh, and, but just a, 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 a wonderful human being. I mean, had the, the most wicked laugh um, and an amazing sense of humor, but also what a really interesting ability because if he was comfortable and relaxed, he would be laughing and smiling and having the time of his life. And then literally, if he sensed that suddenly for the situation, because he'd obviously had a pretty big job with the UN, you know, he could like literally shut down and put the cold sort of stern face on very quickly. So you not only write a book about our industry driving social change, uh, who cares wins, but you make it part of who you are. One Young World is one manifestation of that. I know you've been very involved with various parts of the United Nations, including the Framework Convention uh, on Climate Change way back when, and you've been involved in that issue for many, many years. You've lived it. You not only talk about it, you live it, and you embed it into your DNA and the DNA of the places and people that you touch. Are you optimistic about our ability to act? We're, such, we're in such a fragmented world now, and I worry about getting consensus around issues that on the facts and the science, like climate change, we've got a lot of work to do. Where do you sit on that issue? And are you optimistic or pessimistic? So look, I think, you know, I'm a natural optimist, um, but I'm also concerned about what's going on in climate because we're just not acting, uh, you know, and, and what we are doing, um, the danger is it's too little too late. So if, you know, we really need to accelerate what we are doing. I mean, I think um, the the more recent developments in the US are probably quite positive on that front without without getting political. <laughs> um, you know, why? What's what are the reasons to be optimistic? I think two. I think that brilliant generation of young leaders who are just incredible. And you know, when when we created One Young World, what 12, 13 years ago, um, you didn't have the sort of scale and significance of young leaders uh, back then. But if I said to you now, you know, who's the single person who's doing more for climate than anyone in the world? You'd say Greta, you know. Um, who's, who's the single person who's doing more than anyone in the world on education? It's Malala. So I think you've really seen young, and, and these are the more famous ones, but there's, there's a lot of them, you know, really driving to, for, for, for serious and significant solutions. So I think one reason to be optimistic, um, are brilliant young leaders. Uh, and the second one, honestly, is I think, you know, business stepping up. I think, you know, obviously there's going to be some greenwashing and nice washing, but there's a hell of a lot less of it today than there was when I wrote the book um, 15 years ago. And, uh, you know, you, the, I think if you look at the world simplistically, Tragically, the political system is local and the world is now global. So the only way you get elected in your country is by saying the right thing to the people in your country. And that's not necessarily the right thing for the world. So the political leaders aren't going to fix this. Charities are amazing, but they lack 
the funding and resourcing to drive the change. And often, whilst they're brilliant, they have brilliant intentions, they don't necessarily have the same level of brilliance of execution. And if you were to criticize business, you would have said that business is brilliant at executing, but it doesn't have great intentions. But I think it's starting to get those great intentions. And I think the speed with which business can drive change in the world, if it gets serious about this, is massive. Um, so I would say, look, I don't want to say I'm optimistic because I think it, the climate threat is very serious and very significant. But I, I, I'm not either going to say that I'm very pessimistic because I think the combination of brilliant young leaders and business being a force for good, you know, can help us make real progress. A great answer with a lot of perspective. So you have this wonderful run rising to the very top at Havas, give or take over a 15, 16 year period. And then you leave and you come up with an idea for something new. Take us back to the genesis of you and Mr. Jones. Yeah, so I think there's probably two key things. One, um, I, I was lucky enough for nine years to have an incredible boss, Vincent Bolloré, who I learned an enormous amount from um, and who sort of, you know, plucked me from being the, the CEO of Euro in New York to being the global CEO of Euro and then the CEO of Havas after that. And I think, you know, I just watched him be an entrepreneur. You know, he'd get into the electric car and publishing and TV and WiMAX and, and you, you, know, you just saw somebody who every time they saw a problem or an opportunity would just you know, create an entrepreneurial solution to it. And so I think, you know, I was watching that on the one hand. Secondly, I'd always wanted to, to have my own business. Um, and I think because I'd you know, constantly been getting a new opportunity before I got um, restless, I, and I never got around to doing it. But the really, really big thing very simply was um, it was obvious, you know, and this has all happened, but it was so obvious back then the scale of disruption that technology was going to wreak on marketing and advertising. Um, and I was finding it in full transparency pretty hard to convince the people who worked for me at Havas that that was the case. And, you know, what, what was the very simple problem we set out to solve? You know, the mobile phone had come along. It had totally disrupted all marketing. It had created hundreds of new channels, lots and lots of different formats on those channels. It had given people access or brands access to unprecedented levels of data. It had turned every single person on the planet into a content creator. So when I joined the ad industry, the, the concept that an 18-year-old could, you know, knock off a piece of content for Coke on their way to school. This wasn't a thing, whereas they're now very good at it. And actually most of the time better than 50 something creatives in ad agencies. Um, and all of this had come together. And I was hearing from all of our clients, look, it's got really complicated. We need help. The problem is we go see the big agency groups and whilst they're great at the brand and advertising piece, they don't get tech. We go see the tech platforms. They've got an amazing tech platform but they're never going to be objective and send us to someone else's tech platform. So, you know, YouTube won't send us to Facebook. It won't send us to TikTok. Um, and what we really need is someone who is an expert in both the brand and the tech piece. So I said, okay, we're going to launch the world's first brand tech group. We will use technology to help brands do their marketing better, faster, and cheaper. We'll only do digital. We'll only focus on stuff that is tech enabled but we'll actually put together the best company in the world at helping the world's biggest brands uh, deliver that. And so that was the idea. I mean, we'll be six years old next week. Um, we raised $300 million to go build it because I think the most important thing at the time, was it wasn't like we'd had an idea that no one else could have, but you know, I just believed that we needed to be able to do it globally because if you can just do it in one city or one market, you're part of the problem. 
Um, so, you know, John Mark, my founding partner and CFO and I, um, you know, were the first two employees of the company with our 300 million and then just set out building a company that would connect, you know, content data and media in real time using tech. And, you know, it's been a pretty exciting journey so far. We just finished our global meeting today. There's 4,500 people in the group today and, you know, working with many of the world's biggest companies and, doing their always on digital, social, e-commerce, um, and having a, a really great time doing it. So what I've observed watching you and I was, you know, remember very clearly when you launched it. And I think we had breakfast around that time. We did. Uh, and what you've done better than anybody else is execute. Talk about how your tenure at Havas ultimately as global CEO what you saw and what you learned and how that shaped the growth from an employee base of two to an employee base of 4,500 and how that has shaped your philosophy on building, you know, what is truly a next generation player in our business. Yeah. So I look, I think the teams thing, you know, is, is a, a constant theme. And I'm going to go back to that is just build a brilliant team. Um, you know, I've got the most incredible team, you know, 16 partners, um, you know, Emma was the chairman of CEO of BBH and the global head of strategy there. You know, George was the global creative director on Unilever at RGA. Um, Ron was the founder and CEO of Nuance, took it to IPO, ran it for 10 years. Um, you know, so, I mean, I could keep, I, I, I actually should stop because if I start with the names, I have to do all 16, but we've just, I've just got a team that is just incredible. Um, and, you know, and we keep adding to that. And I think, you know, if you have a brilliant team and importantly, if you build a brilliant team of people with very diverse skill sets, because if you, if you basically only hire people who do what you can do, you know, you're going to have a very limited company. But if you hire people who have very different skill sets to you, um, that will enable you to grow and scale and do things that you couldn't otherwise. So I think, you know, I mean, I, I've always had this sort of soundbite, happy teams win. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I fundamentally uh, believe in that. And I, I also think, you know, diverse teams are way better than non-diverse teams. It goes without saying, it's obvious. But if, you know, if everybody looks like you, had a, a similar upbringing to you, they're going to think like you and you're not going to have that much innovation. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is what you often learn, you know, in, in big companies. I mean, it, it depends where you're sitting. So like, being in Australia and being able to do kind of whatever we wanted taught me so much about innovation and being an entrepreneur and launching new things and tech and digital. Um, and I think probably by the end of my tenure, you know, I was just sitting there going, it, it's impossible to change these big things. You know, it's like, it's just, it's too hard. And you've got a giant legacy business that, you know, it's like Kodak, you know, they invented digital photography. Why is Kodak not one of the most valuable companies in the world today? I mean, they should own, you know, they should have owned Instagram, they should be TikTok, they should be DJI drones, they could be, you know, an Apple. But it's because when you have a very big legacy business, it's really hard to pivot and to change because in doing so, it speeds the decline of how you make your money. And that's why in history, there is not a single example. And in my years gardening leave, I did a bit of lecturing with um, Professor Mike Tushman, who's Harvard's head of disruption. And, you know, he'll show you this slide of 40 companies and they, what they all have in common is that they were once the market leader uh, in, a, in a massive category and they don't exist anymore. So I think it, you know, it would be 
you, I kind of learned how hard it is to change a big global company. And therefore, um, if you can start from scratch with no legacy, focus solely on digital and tech, uh, and the fact that technology now allows you to, to run businesses globally with fewer and fewer people, um, that, you know, that was probably going to be a much more enjoyable and successful formula. And I think, you know, since we've launched, $60 billion has come off the market cap of the, the big traditional players. As if you look at their, you know, the share price performance since April 2018, the, the big holding companies are minus 5%. The S&P is plus 56 and the digital advertising companies are plus 700%. So, you know, I think the, num the numbers speak for how hard it is. Yeah, no, they sure do. So when you're running Havas, a key measure is year-over-year -year organic growth. You start something new, there is no organic growth. You're starting from scratch and you're building through acquisition. You've made some incredible acquisitions. Talk about the filter that you developed to identify companies that you thought would be good targets for Mr. you and Mr. Jones and walk us through that growth, key landmarks going from an employee roster of two to, as you just said, getting close to 5,000. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the point about organic growth, there's, there's only no organic growth in year one. Um, by year two, you know, you're, you're firmly into organic growth. And, you know, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing our organic growth accelerate as we get bigger. You know, we grew 27% organically last year. We're growing 36.6% organically to end April. Um, so, you know, and I think that it's interesting because it should normally go the, way, the other way around, which is the bigger you get, the harder it gets to grow. Um, look, I, I think, you know, we're very clear on, on the sort of core of what we're looking for in businesses. And, and there are sort of four questions that we always ask. The first one is, is it a great business in a vertical we want to play in? Um, you know, secondly, do we like the people and do we think the cultural fit is, is strong? Thirdly, um, you know, can we do a deal at financials that makes sense? And that doesn't mean cheap, but it, mean, you know, it needs to make sense. And finally, and probably most importantly, do we think that our client partners are going to get excited when we tell them that we've done this? Are they going to go, oh, brilliant, can we meet them? Um, and those, kind of, those four things come together. And they're also the criteria we use on the, the minority investment side. Um, you know, we've done 34 investments in... 23, 24 companies. We, you know, we were the, like the first ever uh, external investor in Niantic when they spun out of Google in summer 2015 and you know, a year before they launched Pokemon Go. Um, we put 20 million into Pinterest four years ago. So we've, we've done some really interesting things. And again, it's the same criteria. Is it, you know, is it great tech? Will our clients be excited about this? You know, Often, often on the minority side, the financials don't necessarily make sense when you do them. But if the businesses are as successful as you clearly believe they can be, they make an enormous amount of sense over the long term. So uh, I think then unbeknownst to you, um, way back at the beginning of your tenure and when we launched Advertising Week in 2004, Euro did a bunch of work for us and it wasn't very good. And DDB and our dear friend, the late Ken Case, they did a bunch of work for us. And the agencies all struggled with getting the advertising for advertising week right. It was very interesting, actually, in retrospect. And then along comes an agency out of London called Gravity Road. And for us, they get it right. 
And they come up with the Great Minds Think on a Like line. We're on the Great Minds podcast right now. And uh, we think the world of Mark Eves and Mark Boyd. And I'd love to hear your perspective on Gravity Road, which without question is our very favorite. Look, they're just an amazing company that that is brilliant at what you know brands need today, which is the intersection of um, entertainment, media, gaming, and technology. And you know they have incredible uh, creative capabilities, um, but it, it's not you know incredible old-fashioned. Let's do a thirty-second TV commercial capabilities. It's it's incredible new model. How do we, you know, how do we ensure that this thing sets TikTok on fire and leads to incredible sales success? Or what should we be doing in the in the gaming space? So I think they're just so plugged into where tech is headed, where gaming's headed, where entertainment is headed, and they're able to craft ideas that you know just ignite social media, or to use their words, you know, that people want to spend time with. Um, and I think we're living in a world, you know, when, when we talk about holding companies, we, we talk about them often in like one broad brushstroke, you know, within them, um, there's one category who is going to have a brighter and brighter future, which is the small creative shops, you know, brands in a world where it's harder and harder to buy attention, you need brilliant creative. Uh, and if you, you know, agencies that can deliver brilliant creative have a very bright future. Now you don't need, you know, 355 agencies in a global network, you need four or five brilliant offices. So it's going to favor the smaller end of town. Um, but you know what Gravity, the Gravity Road guys are, are brilliant at and the, all the awards they keep winning, um, they're getting that because of just the, the amazing work that they are doing uh, for their client partners. And so no, it's a, it's a joy to work with them. Yeah, we, we think the world of them. So just to wrap you, said you just finished your global leadership meetings, your sixth birthday is coming up. You're a, a, a big thinker, you're a long-term thinker. Give us a look into the David Jones crystal ball for the next six years. What are the things that you want to accomplish and what do you want the company to look like six years from now? So look, I think, you know, last year, um was a very tough year on many levels with COVID. Um, but what it also did is it, it just turbo boosted digital transformation. Um, and I think, you know, you probably had companies sitting in January 2020 going, yeah, you know, digital transformation, we'll probably get onto that. And then COVID hit and literally people were like, okay, you know, how do we either massively grow our e-com capability or, you know, or start one and, and, and I think what it, it was really, it has really led to a tidal wave of change and, and decisions. And I think we, um, you know, what we are obsessive about is if we can be the best in the world at helping the world's biggest brands connect, you know, content data and media in, in real time using tech and increasingly AI and deliver that for them, they are gonna view us as the most invaluable partner in the world. Um, and, you know, we, we will you know, end up building a very successful and very big company. And so uh, I think going back to your point about execution, that's just literally what we're obsessing about. So we just had Nick Emery, um, who was the global CEO of Mindshare to come in and lead our media division. Uh, will Luttrell, who was the 
founder and CTO of Integral Ad Science and then the founder and CEO of Amino to come in and be our CTO. Um, we will be announcing a, a brilliant hire um, from Amazon to come in and lead our e-com uh, division. So, you know, we, we really are just going to be obsessively executing on the, the original playbook um, and, you know, doing that through a combination of the latest state-of-the-art technology and the best talent. I mean, talent and technology are the two things that are critical to the executional roadmap. And then obviously, if you take it down a layer, you know, we're huge believers in AR. We think AR is going to be very big over the next three, four, five years. You know, AI uh, and its potential, both in terms of the sort of specific around content creation uh, and distribution, but also the broader future for metahumans. Uh, you know, we're very big in, in our belief in gaming and investors in some super interesting gaming companies. So, you know, there's, I think, um, you start looking into this blend of real world, uh, social media world and virtual world, and what brands are going to need to do to live at the intersection of those three worlds. And, you know, the next five years is going to be fascinating. Absolutely terrific. Well, uh, I'm not much of a gambler, but if I was at Caesars Palace right now, and there was a chance to bet on who's going to emerge as the most dominant, successful, influential players, because they're doing great work the next five years, I would put all my chips on you and Mr. Jones. And uh, I can't tell you what a joy it's been watching your journey uh, and what it will be to continue watching it going forward. And on the social front, what you and Kate Robertson do year after year with One Young World is just so inspirational. And uh, I hope you feel good and sleep well at night, if nothing else, because of what you've done there to help empower that next generation of young leaders. Well, Matt, that's very kind of you. And thank you for the support you've given us over the years with One Young World. It's been terrific. And, and also thanks for the kind words as one entrepreneur to another entrepreneur. As we all know, you know, when you're building new things, it's kind of, it's a, it's a massively exciting ad adrenaline rush, but it's also, you know, there's some trickier moments in there as well. So it's, it's great when it all works out.